0: I am currently in school right now pursuing my master's of education in school counseling and I also am pursuing courses to get my professional counseling license. Um, Currently I'm interning in an elementary school and I love it. Um, So a lot of, I would say a lot of who I am now and a lot of what I've experienced does come from my schooling and comes from a lot of conversations I've had with people and a lot of these experiences I've had, especially in the last two years um, just with becoming a parent and going through school and all that stuff. So, um, so in Americans Feel Good About Counseling, um, Alice Youngblood uh, said, if your personal circle helps form your perceptions of mental health, it's worth, worth measuring its diameter. Reframing ideas about mental illness and even taking part in counseling may require an outside-the-comfort-zone vulnerability. What do we stand to miss when these conversations occur in an echo chamber? How many people who desperately needed counseling haven't sought it out because no one in their circle recommended it? The well-being of any individual or community is an exchange, a holy balance of listening up and speaking out. And I would say here at Church of Briargate, we probably have a pretty good um, a circle of people who are very pro-mental health. We've got a lot of counselors here. We've got um, a pastor who speaks very openly about those things. And I would say as a whole, As a body, we are probably very open about that. But maybe that's not the case for you specifically. You know, maybe you feel uncomfortable about it. Maybe um, you've got a kid or a family member who feels uncomfortable about it. And I would say like whoever that is, if that's you, if that's your family member, whoever it is, just really like take to heart what we're talking about tonight. And don't be afraid to reach out to those people in your life that do feel uncomfortable about that and be willing to talk to them about it. Because I can promise you that they don't want to continue to suffer and I can promise you that they don't want to continue to deal with the things they're dealing with, especially on their own. Whenever we face fear and doubt that's rooted in suffering, one of our most basic instincts is to turn to self-reliance. A lot of times we think, oh, well, life isn't playing by the rules, and bad things are happening to me for reasons that I have not caused, and God must have obviously failed me. Uh, so I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. And I don't know about you guys, but I am a planner, and I plan all the things, and it's just it's just my nature. It's just who I am, and uh, I would say I'm actually pretty good at it. Um, and I know that sometimes I can get so stuck in my own self-reliance, regardless if it's if if it's like anxiety or whatever, I can get so stuck in my own self-reliance that I kind of forget about God's plan. And I think, oh, well, God isn't figuring this out or maybe he's just not figuring out fast enough. And so obviously I need to get it taken care of. Um, But I can tell you that God doesn't want us to try to figure it out by ourselves. Like we're not called to suffer or, or deal with things like this by ourselves because God has a plan and he has a purpose and he wants to help us when we feel deep in that pit, he wants to help us out of it. And facing change can be a daunting overtaking, undertaking, um, one in which we could dis- become discouraged. So a lot of times, instead of facing that change and instead of um, being willing to work through that change, we just kind of passively accept what we're going through because it's easier than facing the change process. And it's easier than facing um, what might happen if we decided to make that change. In Philippians 4, 4 through 9, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Is any, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's some cool things that God promises here. He promises peace, first of all, and contentment who persevere in the ba- for those who persevere in the battle of faith. So this doesn't mean he's going to remove the pain or suffering. But it means that he's going to be with you along the process. And he's going to give you that strength, which gives you an assurance to know that he will give you that peace and he will give you that hope and he will give you that contentment. I know there's been a lot of times in my life um, where God has spoken this verse to me over and over again. Personally, I have struggled with anxiety um, for a long time. And I actually started to kind of think about that today. You know, like, when did that really start? And I remember um, I had to do a developmental analysis of my entire life for one of my classes, which was a little bit daunting. Um, But I figured out that my perfectionism started when I was in about third grade. Um, And I remember coming home and being so, so terribly upset because I had made a 93 on my report card. And I was a failure, obviously, because I had made a 93 on my report card. And for me, anxiety didn't always look like anxiety, for me, anxiety looked like perfectionism. For me, anxiety looked like achievement. For me, anxiety looked like in high school becoming hysterical because I couldn't get everything done on time because I was way overcommitted and way distracted by everything else going on in life, and I couldn't get it all done. And so I would encourage you too, like, if you have something going on in your life, like, don't think, oh, it's not this just because it's not the same as it is for that person. Because I can tell you that things that you go through and struggles like anxiety and depression and things like that, like they don't look the same for every person. For me, that came out as perfectionism and achievement. And and later on, it came out as rage and anger. Um, But for everyone, it doesn't look like that. You know, and you may be facing depression, but that may not look like that. It may not look like, oh, I just feel sad all the time. I know a lot of people that for them, depression is anger. And there may be people in your life that you might start like trying to diagnose them. Um, But you might realize like, hey, you know, maybe that's my kid. Maybe this is something my child is going through. I know in our youth group, man, we've got so many students that are dealing with this. And I think in the past, when a lot of us were growing up, um, these weren't things that were talked about as much. And so I think that there were people struggling with these things, but I don't think that they were talked about as much. So because of that, people just kind of shoved them under the rug and maybe kind of ignored them and maybe didn't really pay attention to them. Or if it was extreme, they just sent them away to like a mental hospital or something because they didn't know how to handle it. People didn't know how to help people cope with these things. And I think now that we've begun to discuss things like anxiety openly, I think that a lot more parents are realizing, okay, maybe this is something my kid is struggling with. I can tell you in these precious elementary school kids that I work with, there are so many of them that are actually diagnosed by a doctor with anxiety. You know, there are kids that are in elementary school that are on medicine for depression. You know, and it's so hard. It's so hard for me to see that as a school counselor and to realize, like, these kids are struggling. And these kids are going through a lot. But I think, too, like the generations before them were probably struggling just as much. But there weren't always people in place to help them. And it maybe wasn't always accessible for them. And so I think as a, as a culture and as a church and as a community, we have to be willing to, to get around people that are struggling. And help them to realize that, first of all, there's not a stigma associated with it. And that there's nothing wrong with them. And coming from someone who has anxiety and who's struggled that in a lot of different ways, and that's looked a lot of different ways in my life, in different stages of my life, I can tell you that people don't want to be stuck there. You know, and, and a lot of times they may brush it off and say, I'm fine, I'm okay. But they don't want to be stuck there. And so if we can become that community of Christ that God's called us to be and reach out to the people around us, not even in a big corporate way, but just in an individual kind of way. Man, God can show his hope. Just like he talked about in Philippians, he can show his hope through us to those around us. And if you're in this room and you're like, man, I'm struggling. I have so much going on and I feel like I'm being overwhelmed by this. And I feel like I'm dealing with anxiety or depression or something else. Like there's hope. And you're not stuck there. You don't have to suffer alone. And the key to experiencing the assurance that we're talking about in Philippians 4 is humility. And we see time and time again that God will exalt the humble, but that he's opposed to the proud. Self-reliance is rooted in pride. And 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 reminds us that we forfeit peace when we choose pride and self-reliance. In that verse, it says, So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. We had uh, fine arts this weekend, and um, we had one very, very courageous student, uh, Shane David. I had never heard the kid's sermon before. His parents hadn't heard it before, and he wouldn't let them hear it. And all we knew was that he was preaching about anxiety, which is something that he openly admits that he struggles with. And he spoke with such wisdom. Way more wisdom than I would expect a middle school kid to speak with. He spoke with such wisdom, though. And one of the things he said that really, really stuck with me was that anxiety was given to us by the devil. But that it stays with us because we're too proud to admit that we need God's help. Wow. You know, I think sometimes as adults, we get so stuck in this idea of like I have to present myself as being okay, and I have to present myself as not having anything wrong with me. And it doesn't matter if I'm suffering because no one can know. And there was a time in my life um, after my parents got divorced that I really believed that showing emotion was a sign of weakness and I wouldn't cry in public. I wouldn't show a lot of emotion. I was just very hardened and very um, stubborn and strong willed because I thought that if I let people see my hurt and if I let people see what I was going through, then I was going to be weak. And that wasn't going to fit into my perfectionism and my achievement and all those things. So I couldn't let people see it. And I think sometimes as adults, we kind of have that same mentality of like, no one can see me suffer. No one can see me go through stuff. No one can see the hardships I'm facing because if they do, then they may not think that I'm as strong in God as I am. They may not think I'm as much of a leader as they do now. They may not think that I could be as good at my job as I I could be, you know, and they, they may doubt me in some areas if they see my weakness. But I really do agree with what Shane said is that a lot of times that anxiety stays with us because we're too proud to admit that we need God's help. We're too proud to admit that we need someone else's help. We're too proud to admit that we're even struggling. And as a culture, I do believe that we're creating a shift in that way. In the realm of mental health and things like that, I do believe we're creating a shift in that way. But I don't think that we're all the way there yet. There's still such a stigma around this stuff. And it's it's silly, honestly, and it shouldn't be there. But there's still such a stigma sometimes. We had a kid um, that came to see the school counselor. And the next day, he was very freaked out and very scared because his parents had told him that, if he went to go see the school counselor, he might get taken away, which is literally like not true at all and I think that sometimes um especially like in the schools when there is a school counselor and things like that, I think sometimes parents can get scared you know of like oh, what's my kid saying or what are what are they what are they talking about or whatever but I think that kind of goes along with that stigma with mental health, you know of like What's going to happen if I actually admit my weakness? What's going to happen if I admit that I'm suffering and I admit that I'm going through something that maybe I can't handle by myself? But I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be able to get through it. And you're going to be able to have people come alongside you and join a community with you and help you realize that, first of all, there's nothing wrong with you. And then secondly, that you don't have to go through it by yourself. Every believer is simultaneously a saint, a sinner, and a sufferer. When we sin, we invite consequences of moral responsibility, which may cause anxiety and depression. So sometimes things like that are caused by things that we've done. I know we maybe we all have like one of those like friends, not us, of course, that has maybe done something in our lives that we shouldn't have done. And we've maybe invited some suffering into our life by things that we've done. Something else that might cause uh, anxiety, depression, those can be suffered due to the moral choice of someone else. Man, sometimes junk happens. Junk happens in our lives and it's because of other people and that causes suffering in our lives. And examples of this include trauma, abuse, violence, things like that. And a lot of times the sufferer will feel the guilt of the actions of the person who caused that suffering. And I see this so many times with students and, uh, you know, with these elementary school kids I'm working with and with our teenagers. Like a lot of times things have happened to them in life. Bad things. Awful things. And instead of saying this wasn't my choice and I couldn't control that, they take it upon themselves. And, and the, the suffering they experience and the guilt and the, and the anxiety and the depression and things like that, like they own it because they feel like they have to. And maybe you're in here, maybe you've been through stuff and, you know, maybe it was caused by you or maybe someone else caused it and you've owned it. And I can tell you that as long as you keep carrying those chains around, as long as you keep owning that for yourself, you're never going to get rid of it. Because you keep calling it my this, my anxiety, my depression. It doesn't have to be yours. But a lot of times we get so stuck in that, we're so afraid of that change, we're so afraid of what that might look like and the effort that it might take, that we're afraid to push forward and we're afraid to, to see the light at the end of the tunnel because we're scared of what it might take to get there. And we're scared of what part of ourselves we might have to give up and, and release in order to get to that point. Sometimes suffering is also the result of a chemical imbalance. I know a lot of times for me, um, it's not always been caused by something in my life. You know, sometimes people literally have a chemical imbalance. And I think sometimes we try to chalk it up to like something spiritual all the time. You know, and I don't always think that it has to be something spiritual. Yes, I do think Satan allowed things like anxiety and depression to come into this world. But I don't always think that, you know, because you struggle with depression, you sinned. Or because you struggle with this, obviously someone did something to you in your past. Man, sometimes it just happens. And I think that's the hardest part sometimes is like you don't know where it comes from and you don't know how to deal with it because there may not be an exact triggering event. There may not be an exact thing that caused it to come about. In the book, I'm Not Supposed to Feel Like This, Chris Williams, Paul Richards, and Ingrid Witten explain that anxiety leads people to overestimate the challenges they're facing while underestimating that they can deal with those challenges. Similarly, in depression, the person often criticizes their self and others, looking at the negative in life only, often entertaining worst-case scenarios while feeling hopeless about their future. And I have caught myself sometimes overreacting a little bit. I think we probably all have. Um, And a lot of times I'll see students start to do this. Um, Teenagers a lot of times will create these personal fables of like, oh, this is only happening to me. And this is only an issue that I've dealt with. And surely there's no one else dealing with this. And so, of course, then my reaction must be very large because no one else can help me. And a lot of times I like to look at the size of the problem versus the size of the reaction. And I've had conversations with students about this. I've had them draw things on whiteboards. And I'll say, what is the size of this problem? Let's talk about it. You know, let's take your emotions out of it. What is the size of this problem? And they'll draw a box, you know, this big or maybe this big even. And I'll say, okay, now how big is your reaction right now? What does that look like? And then they've got this big box because they know the reaction is way bigger than the size of their problem. And I think sometimes with both anxiety and depression and even other mental health struggles, we can get into that situation where we kind of make everything a catastrophe. I have been in quite a few situations that my husband's walked with me through um, where I've done things and I'm like, it's the end of the world. Everything is ruined. I have ruined the whole plan for my life that I've created and literally nothing can fix it. And he's like, okay, okay. So what do, I, what do I need to do? <laughs> and I'm like, nothing because everything is ruined. You know, and when I get myself to kind of calm down and I take some deep breaths and I really start to think about it in a more rational way, I start to realize that the size of my problem, in retrospect, in perspective of, you know, my whole life, the size of my problem is really a lot smaller than my reaction is. And I think sometimes when we allow ourselves to to go to anxiety or to go to depression or to go to other struggles we might face, you know, even if those aren't things that you've been diagnosed with, I think at some point we all struggle with things like anxiety or depression. I think at at some point we all have those moments, you know, and I think we all have those moments where our reaction is way bigger than the actual size of our problem. And even for parents, man, I would say this is huge. Like, working with students is helping them to realize that though they may be making this thing huge, and it may be huge to them, that is their perspective, yes, and that is their world, yes. But helping them to kind of step out of that perspective and realize, like, hey, I know that this is, like, the end of the world for you in middle school right now, but let's look at the real size of this problem. Let's look at the real size of this problem in comparison to, like, your life and in comparison to everything else that's going on here. And one of the most difficult things I think to do is to allow others to bear that suffering with you. Like I said, we want to be almost proud, you know, of like, oh, I'm not weak. I can't show that. I can't allow people to see my weakness. I can't allow them to see the things I'm struggling with, the pain or whatever it is, the thoughts that I have. I can't allow them to know those things. And too many believers feel they can't be a burden to others. If you have ever felt like, you are afraid to be a burden to others. Please raise your hand. Yeah, literally. And that was brave, just to admit that. Um, you're like, I hope Liz doesn't think I'm a burden raising my hand right now. Um, yeah, I man, I think a lot of times we don't want to be a burden. You know, and it's not even that we don't always want to admit our suffering. It's that we're like, oh, well, if I tell them this, like, they're going to have to help me. And it's going to be hard for them. And I might inconvenience them. And, you know, we don't want to inconvenience people in the body of Christ because, you know, Heaven forbid we act like the body of Christ and help one another. And I think sometimes we get so stuck in that. But suffering, even the suffering of anxiety and depression, is meant to be dealt with in community. You know, and we're not called to be community so that we can all suffer alone. We're not called to be community so that when we have um, financial troubles, no one's there to help us. We're not called to be community so that when someone in our family dies, no one comes and visits. And man, I have seen Church of Briargate. I mean, we've been here almost six years. I have seen Church of Briargate be community in some big, crazy ways. You know, some amazing ways. And even through that, I know that there are people that sometimes feel like, oh, I can't be a burden. You know? And you've seen it time and time again, but you feel like, man, they'll help that person. And it's good that they helped them. And it's good that they helped them through whatever they were going through. But, man, I can't let them know what I'm going through because I can't be a burden to them. But God isn't calling us to deal with our things alone. Whatever our thing is, it doesn't matter if it's anxiety or depression or finances, like I talked about before, you know, maybe an addiction or something like that. It doesn't matter what it is. God hasn't called us to deal with it by ourselves. He's called us to be part of the body of Christ. And as part of the body of Christ, we want to help each other. We want to be there for each other. We're familiar, again, with Philippians 4, 6, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. But prior to verse 6, Paul's readers are encouraged to live in harmony with one another to be known for their gentle spirit and to rejoice in the Lord. And being a part of a church community that portrays these kinds of qualities and character helps us trust that we will heal. And it helps us trust that our situation will heal, whatever it is. It helps us trust that, hey, God's going to get me through this, and these people all around me are going to help because we're acting in the community that God called us to be we can overcome anxiety and depression quicker with others supporting us rather than attempting to do it on our own and when you've been dominated by anxiety or depression for a long time your emotions can be viewed as more of a foe than a friend and a lot of times like when you deal with stuff like that like you just want to ignore those emotions because when you when you acknowledge those emotions sometimes they get too big I know there's been times, and Josh can probably attest to this, um, when my emotions have gotten way too big, literally out of nowhere. Um, And I think it can be easy to try to disconnect from those emotions because they're not your friend anymore. And when you allow yourself to feel those emotions, when you allow yourself to feel those things that you're dealing with, maybe it gets too big and maybe you blow up. Maybe you scream at your spouse or your children or, or your friends in anger. Maybe you scream at the customer service lady in anger. And she didn't deserve it. Who knows? Sometimes they do, I'll be honest. Maybe when those emotions get too big, you get to this like pit of despair and you feel so stuck. You know, so sometimes it's easier to just ignore your emotions. It's easier to just kind of let it pass by and and let yourself kind of disconnect. But when you start to disconnect like that, you start to disconnect from a lot more than just your emotions. You start to disconnect from life. You start to disconnect from your family. You start to disconnect from people at church and your friends. And you start to disconnect from really who you are. Because God didn't create you by accident. He didn't create the intricacies of who you are by accident. And sometimes suffering comes, and things happen, and we feel like an accident. We feel like um, a failure or a problem, but you're not. And your, your spouse is not, and your friend is not, and your family member is not. And God didn't create you by accident. He created the, the very things that, that drive you and that push you. He created those things for a purpose and for a reason. And so we can't allow ourselves to disconnect. We can't allow ourselves to make those emotions our foe instead of our friend. Because when we do that, it's like mistrusting breathing. Um, When we mistrust our emotions, the only thing that we're left with is emotional arrest. When we mistrust breathing, it's just something that happens naturally. But if we can't trust that we're getting air while we're breathing, we're going to try to stop the breathing. And then you will eventually run out of air and die because You've mistrusted the very thing that gives you life. And our emotions, man, they give us so much life. And we can't mistrust those. Sometimes we have to learn to regulate them, yes, but we can't mistrust them. and We can't try to disconnect from them. Imagine the child who learns that home is a safe place. Because they can get hurt. They can cry. They can receive comfort and they can re-engage life there. That is the kind of experience that you should expect with God and your emotions. It should be a safe place. You know, I know a lot of times, like, we talk with students as youth pastors, and we try to tell them, like, this is safe, and you can be real, and you can spill. You know, you can vomit your thoughts. You can vomit your emotions on us because we're safe. And not everyone's going to be safe with you. But in the body of Christ, and especially with God, it's safe, and it should be safe. And God doesn't want us to try to disconnect from those things. He wants us to experience that kind of connection, just like a child who feels like their home is safe. That's how we should feel in our time with God. That's how we should feel in our relationship with God. And we may still hurt at times. Just because you're learning to deal with your emotions, just because you're learning to to process things and regulate things, that doesn't mean that it's going to go away. You know, we've got teenagers, man, still battling grief, a lot of grief from the whites passing away. And we try to tell them that grief doesn't look like this, where you're like, yeah, it's gone, I did it, I dealt with it. It doesn't look like that. It's all over the place, and it's always going to be all over the place. And throughout time, the waves might get smaller, but there's still going to be waves. And you're still going to feel those highs and lows. Whatever you're struggling with, just because you start dealing with it and you start coping with it and you start figuring out how to process it, it doesn't mean that it's going to go away. Yeah, I've figured out how to deal and cope with my anxiety, but that doesn't mean that it goes away. That doesn't mean that there aren't still those moments where I just like walk in the bathroom and shut the door and just breathe. Because I know that I just have to remove myself from the situation. And the longer you deal with these things, the waves may not be as big, but they're still going to happen. But the joy of that is knowing that they don't have to happen alone. and They don't have to happen by themselves. And trusting the process and expressing that emotional pain to God, it helps us understand that that's a safe place and that God wants to comfort us. Man, when Jesus died on that cross, he felt a lot of the things that we feel now. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know. Don't you think he felt hurt that they were doing that? Don't you think he felt A little betrayed by God when he was in the garden and he was saying, Father, take this cup from me, but let your will be done. Man, don't you think that he felt maybe a little hopeless at times? He has experienced suffering. And I think sometimes we, even in our relationship with God, we disconnect so much because we're afraid that if we tell God about our suffering, he may be like, oh, and I was trying to make you a leader of a small group. You know, I think that sometimes he may say, oh, I was trying to get you to pour into that, that woman's life. But now you're suffering and I didn't know about it. So I can't do that now. But that's the exact opposite. You know, if we can't be open with God about our suffering, then who can we be open with? Can we even be open with ourselves about it at that point? Can we even be real with who we really are at that point? Trusting this process is what allows a depressed or anxious person to eventually re-engage life with hope. And quite frankly, I would replace those two things with a lot of different things. Trusting this process is what allows an addicted person to eventually re-engage life with hope. A suffering person, however you may be suffering, when you trust that process and you trust that God is the safe place where you can heal and you can hurt and you can be open and honest, then you can start to re-engage life with hope. And when our anxiety And depression is rooted in suffering, not in sin. Our goal is to balance those two mentalities. First, we have to accept that depression or anxiety will be part of our experience. You know, and I think for me, a lot of times I was trying to push it off. I was trying to make it perfectionism. I was trying to make it achievement. And if I could just be perfect enough and if I could just get all the right grades and just graduate at the top of my class and, you know, do all these crazy things. If I could just do all of it, then maybe I could, like, push the anxiety away or wouldn't have to deal with it. But it's really when I allowed myself to kind of settle in that and realize, like, okay, this is part of my experience. This is part of what I'm going through. I just kind of have to accept it and learn how to walk through it. And it was when... I accepted that, I started to get some balance in my life and I started to get some some relief, I would say, in my life. We also have to do so and accept that without succumbing to a sense of failure or shame. And then we must commit to living out a healthy, God-honoring response to our experience of depression or anxiety or suffering, whatever it lives, whatever that looks like. We have to be willing to live out a God-honoring response to that. Because I know, for me, screaming at my husband is not a God-honoring response to my anxiety. God, and Josh is probably like, amen. Thank you. So glad you realized that. You know, sometimes our, yeah, sometimes our reactions You know, it's because of this. It's because of this suffering. It's because of this issue. It's because I'm stressed about our finances. It's because I'm stressed because I can't find a job. It's because I'm stressed about my health. And so we react in a way that's not God-honoring. And when we learn that whatever this suffering is is part of our experience, first of all, we can't succumb to the fact that we might think we're a failure or we're full of shame or guilt or anything like that but then we also have to realize that we've got to push through and do it in the most God-honoring way we can and that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect at it because I can promise you you're not Um, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to just like walk out and be like look at me I'm the most God-honoring person you've ever met look at how I'm dealing with this it's so wonderful everyone should follow my example that's not going to happen and we have to realize like we are going to fail, and we are going to have moments where we can't figure it out. But when we're surrounded by God and when we're surrounded by community, we don't have to figure those things out on our own. So we have a video um, that kind of explains what depression and anxiety feel like. So if you could go ahead and play that, I just kind of give us all some insight.
1: You feel like you're in this state of mind where nothing can make you feel any better. It's a constant state of uh, worry. Something that can really conflict in your life and, and, and really limits what you can do in your life as well. You just, the world is turning around you and you can't. Do anything, I do you're not helping anything, you're just and you I would lose friends, friends all I, constantly constantly I would lose friends, I friends, well, I would friends, I would not I I would I I I would I I I never go out and see anybody. And when I did, I was never quite happy and everyone always asked what was wrong. I lost a shit ton of weight. I couldn't go to school, so I couldn't see my friends. I was housebound. And that kind of just escalated. And from then on, it's just my life just seemed to have this kind of damper on it because I was always having to suffer. I had no idea why I was so scared of nothing. Feel like you're being choked or you can't breathe. None of it was rational. You're stuck in this state of mind where you don't want people to see you like that. I don't really want to burden them. He was older than me and was into all the same stuff I was into. And I fell head over heels in love with him. Being with someone for two years to ending a relationship, I I really took on his emotions as well as mine. I found out that he cheated on me with three different girls. But I've coped with them up until that one point where I broke. I think there definitely needs to be more awareness. All you have to do is look at the suicide rate. Myself having lost a close friend of mine as well through you know, them taking their life. I know now that it was probably the worst decision ever. I now look at my body and see all my scars and I'm like, these are the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. I don't think you can understand what anyone else goes through unless you go through it yourself. The only thing you can do is support them. A friend of mine that did unfortunately take his life was the kind of person that probably wouldn't want to talk about it so much. I can't stress enough how much people need to be open, talk about it, seek any kind of help. I found that writing down my feelings instead of carving lines into my hands was the, the best thing that I could do. It doesn't always have a lie at the end of the tunnel. But I have seen how I've progressed over the years and how it got so bad. And now I'm at a point where it's not that bad. Like, it's still there, and I still suffer from it, but it's not as bad as it used to be.
0: So I think sometimes um, people suffer and we don't always know what that looks like. You know, and I think sometimes people around us suffer and, you know, maybe we get frustrated with them. You know, maybe as a parent you're like, oh my gosh, why can't you just move past this? You know, whatever you're, is going on, why can't you just move past it and, and recognize that you need to get over it? But I think we don't always realize what that suffering looks like. You know, and maybe you're suffering and you don't know how to codify that and how to put that into words for someone else. And so maybe people are frustrated with you and maybe they're, they're upset with you and they're like, why can't you just do these things that you need to do to move past it? Why can't you just decide? And I would encourage you, if you're in that place, try to find the words. Try to find the words to explain the feelings. Try to, first of all, even try to identify those feelings. You know, it doesn't matter what you're suffering with, because I can promise you that if you're suffering with something in your life, it's probably affecting you in some kind of emotional way. If you're you're suffering in your finances, it's probably causing you to be stressed out. Maybe even angry. Maybe anxious, maybe overwhelmed. And man, I deal with elementary school kids all the time who um, they can't put their feelings into words. And they come in and they're upset, and uh, maybe, you know, they're crying about one thing or they're upset about one thing, but what's really going on is over here. You know, what's really going on is what happened at home this morning before they left. You know? And maybe it wasn't even something that big to us. But to that person, it's huge. And maybe you feel like your suffering is big to you, but it sh- it shouldn't be big to someone else. But I can promise you that if it's big to you, it's big to God. And if it's big to you, God wants to help you through it. He doesn't want to walk or leave you to walk alone. He doesn't want to leave you to try to figure it out by yourself. And so we have to think about what does it mean as a Christian to commit to living out a healthy, God-honoring response to our experience, to our suffering. It really means recognizing that we can't do it alone. It means recognizing that God hasn't placed us here in this community in church at Briargate with the people in your family or the people at your work. It means that God hasn't placed you there to do things by yourself. And to just try to rely on you because you're strong enough and, and if you show weakness, that's bad. I remember um, the time I finally broke. I was at youth camp. And I think that I was 16. And I remember breaking and it was it was a series of brokenness that had been in my life. My parents divorced when I was 15. And up until that, I was an extreme perfectionist and achiever. And really, I just kind of ramped those things up when that happened, because I couldn't show weakness about that. And so instead, I had to be the extreme opposite and be like the most okay. Uh, And I remember breaking and I remember being at the altar and giving it to God and weeping and weeping and weeping. And I literally could not stop weeping. Because it was like all of that emotion that I had stored up and kept to myself and tried to deal with on my own. I finally let it go. And I can tell you, man, my experience with, with all of the things in my life has been so much better. Because I've allowed other people to be a part of that. And I can tell you that God will strategically place people in your life and strategically ordain friendships and and church relationships and mentorships and things like that. God will ordain those things because he doesn't want you to suffer alone. Those people who are going to tell you when you're wrong, those people who are going to tell you, hey, God's got this. Those people who are going to take your hand and say, I will walk with you through this whatever that looks like, recognize who those people are. Because I can promise you that they're not there by accident. We also have to realize that we need God's help. And I think that's the biggest one. I think, you know, like we were joking about trying to hide it from God. God already knows what you're dealing with. And man, if you try to deal with it on your own, God is literally sitting there saying, okay, well, I know you're dealing with this and I'm kind of waiting for you to ask me to help you. But I don't know about you. I'm very stubborn. Um, my child is also very stubborn. We're calling it leadership right now. Um, but man, sometimes I try to do things on my own and I try to figure it out on my own because surely God couldn't figure this out. Surely God does not have time to figure out my issues. Let me plan out everything and let me figure it out for myself because, you know, God doesn't have time for that. But that's not what He wants you to do. He wants you to give it to him and say, you know what, I can't do this by myself, and I don't want to. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think sometimes we give it to God, and we're like, well, I can't, but I still want to. I still want to be in charge, so if you could just let me know your plans, God, so I can make it happen. But God's like, no, really, give it to me. And I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to tell you how to do it, and I'm going to ordain your steps and walk you through this. And you don't have to try to figure it out on your own because I'm here, and I'm lifting that burden off. I'm unwrapping those chains that you've wrapped around your heart. And God wants to do that. And maybe that community for you, maybe that's a counselor. I think that a lot of times with the stigma we talked about earlier around mental health, I think sometimes we don't want to see counselors because, oh, man, we don't want to tell some stranger our business. What if they're judgmental? They're counselors. They're not going to be. And if they are, they're sure not going to tell you. And I think sometimes we're afraid to seek out help like that because we're like, well, what if someone finds out that I'm going to a counselor? Oh, what if someone finds out that I'm taking care of myself? Oh, my goodness. You know, to me, that's silly. That's just like saying, what if someone finds out that I shower daily? Oh, no. You took care of yourself. You know, and I think sometimes we place stigmas around things like that or around being open with our friends and our family and, you know, the people in our church. We place stigma around things like that. But it's literally just as important as personal hygiene. You're taking care of yourself. And that's important. That's so vital, not only to your mental health and to your spirit and yourself, but to the people around you. Because when you're dealing with something and you refuse to to take care of yourself, you refuse to keep walking through it and keep pushing through it, and you just kind of try to push it aside and ignore it, and it keeps rearing its ugly head, you're not the only one affected by that. Your family's affected by that. Your coworkers, your friends, people are affected by that. And they might not always tell you because they may not know what it is and they may not be able to recognize that. But you probably know. You probably know that it's affecting more than just you. Maybe it's close friends that you can reach out at a moment's notice. You know, you can say, oh, I'm dealing with this. I have had kids text me at 10.30 at night And uh, I've got one girl, she'll text me, she'll say, hey. I'll say, okay, what's going on? You know? Maybe it's people like that that you can just say, hey. And they know. They know what's happening. They know what's going on. And they're willing to keep talking to you and keep helping you through it. Because they're on your team and they're there for you. Maybe it's a doctor that can prescribe medicine to help you regulate. You know, I think sometimes, too, along with this stigma against mental health, I think sometimes there's a stigma against medicine. But just like we talked about how sometimes that's a chemical imbalance, sometimes you need medicine to help that. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be labeled or that you're going to be on it forever or that it's the end of the world because you failed at everything else and now your last resort is medicine. Maybe you just need to get it from up here to down here so that you can deal with it. And there is no shame in that. And I don't think that God created doctors with crazy wisdom like he did for us to just ignore that kind of stuff and for us to kind of forget about that stuff. Whatever it is, you need to know that it won't always look the same for everyone. I think sometimes that's the hardest part. I think, you know, as someone who's dealt with anxiety I think it can be hard sometimes to help kids deal with that. Because you're like, do this. This is what works. But maybe that doesn't work for them. Or maybe as a parent you've dealt with something and now your kid's dealing with it. And you're like, if you would just do this, it would be dealt with. But maybe that doesn't work for your kid. Maybe that doesn't work for your friend. Maybe that doesn't work for your parent or your sibling. It doesn't always look the same for everyone. And it doesn't always work, whatever, you know, whatever that is, it may not always work the same for everyone. And I think when we start to embrace those things, when we start to embrace our relationship with God and find that as a safe place. And we start to find those safe people within our lives that God has ordained to be in our life. Man, it's going to get so much easier. It's going to make a lot more sense because we'll start to realize that we're not doing this alone and we're not dealing with it by ourselves. And so I'm gonna close in prayer and I would just say, man, if that's you and that's something that you're dealing with, if you're suffering in any way, just really, really encourage you to give that to God right now. Or if there's someone in your family or a friend or something like that that they're struggling, call out to God on their behalf. Because God hears your cries. He hears the cries of his people. Scripture says that he heard the cries of his people over and over again. And when we call out to God for ourselves or on behalf of others, man, God hears that. And he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't leave it there. So I'm gonna pray, and if that's you or someone in your family or your friends or whatever, I encourage you just to really Make this prayer for that person, whoever it is, and whatever their struggle is. It doesn't have to be depression. It doesn't have to be anxiety. Sure, that's mostly what I'm talking about, but maybe they're addicted to something. You know? Maybe they're addicted to being stressed out about everything all the time. or Maybe it's something way bigger. And then after we pray, commit to walking alongside that person. Don't just pray for them and be like, oh, I prayed for you. Great. No, maybe you are that God-ordained person. Maybe you're the one that God has called to walk alongside them and to be that person for them. So let's pray. God, I just thank you, um, God, for the ways that you're moving in our hearts right now, God. The ways that... You're speaking to us, Father. I pray that if anyone here is suffering, whatever that may look like, God, I pray that you would help them to recognize that, first of all, they're not alone. God, be the safe place for them. God, that safe place where they can be real and they can be open and they can be honest with who they are and with what they're dealing with, God. Bring people alongside them and help them to recognize that those relationships are God-ordained. Help them be able to advocate for themselves and recognize that it's going to be a lot better if they come alongside their community. And God, if there's people in our lives that that are dealing with these things that are suffering in any way, Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you have placed us in their lives for a reason. God, don't let us be passive in these situations. Don't let us um, just, just pray every once in a while or let them know that we're praying for them. But God, let us be active in that. God, let us be so full of your power and your hope, God. Let us cry out to you on their behalf. And God, I thank you for what you're doing already, God, for the things that you've already started to prepare in our hearts and in our minds and in the hearts and minds of those that we're we're crying out for, God. God, we thank you that this is not the end, but God, that it's just the beginning of what you're doing. That it's just another step to moving towards victory, God, and to moving towards freedom from those things that have put chains around our hearts and chains around our spirits, God. And God, I just thank you that you just continue to move, God, on our behalf, on the behalf of those that we love so dearly, God. In your name we pray, amen. All right, well, that was heavy, but thanks. <laughs> you unravel me with a melody You surround me with a song I've